Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Unheard, I'm Freddie Sayers. New campaign groups like Enough is Enough and Don't Pay here in the UK seem to be gathering momentum. Energy prices are spiralling far beyond affordability. There are strikes, transport and rail companies in particular. On the London Underground, millions of people walk straight past signs and posters requesting that they wear a face mask, and yet almost nobody does. Abroad, the Gilets Jaunes in France, the Farmers in Holland, the Canadian Truckers are all groups organising against the state. And if we believe the analysts, it's all going to get worse this winter before it gets better. So are we entering into a new era? Perhaps not of revolution, but of mass civil disobedience? One writer and activist who thinks the answer to that question is yes is Thomas Fatsi. He wrote a powerful article recently for Unheard entitled Civil Disobedience is Coming. Is he right? He joins us from Rome, Italy. Welcome, Thomas. Hi, Freddie. So I'm going to just start off straight away by seeing if you can sketch a scenario for us and see if we can find it plausible enough that some sort of civil disobedience might be coming down the track. What, what needs to happen for that to become a possibility? It's hard to say what the breaking point of uh, Western citizens has become. Uh, every, you know, I've been expecting things to uh, boil up for quite some time. And, you know, now and again, you see uh, something that seems to be gaining momentum and then it kind of fizzles out, you know? So it seems like the, uh, the threshold of Western citizens, their capacity to withstand uh, you know, worsening living conditions has definitely uh, grown over the years. So um, on the one hand, we, we clearly, you know, we've seen material conditions of Western uh, citizens, of the overwhelming majority of Western citizens, of Western workers uh, deteriorate over the past decades. But at the same time, we've also seen um, sort of a rising apathy in, um, in, in Western societies. And so the two things, you know, uh, the, the question is, you know, where what's the what, what's the breaking point? I think we might be uh, nearing that point. I mean, we do seem to be kind of uh, on the on the verge of a kind of uh, perfect storm. Some people call it polycrisis. So we have the clearly the economic crisis. We've got uh, you know a, 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 a working crisis where we know that wages have been flatlining, uh, if not falling, for decades, and now they're literally falling off a cliff as a result of inflation. We've got the energy crisis. Uh, we've got the uh, the green transition crisis, where governments' attempts to uh, <laughs> 
force people to uh, uh, wane off, um, especially force producers to wane off uh, fossil fuel, uh, you know, are having very dire consequences. Um, and of course, we have, you know, uh, a series of military uh, crises uh, quite close to home. And um, so, I mean, the situation is very, I think, quite, quite dear. And it, my impression is that Western leaders do seem to have lost control of the situation. Either they're completely inane, and so they slept, you know, they kind of sleptwalked into, uh, they sleepwalked into this crisis. Uh, so they had, you know, just didn't, they couldn't see what they were, uh, where they were heading for, which would make them, you know, <laughs> completely uh, inane. Or this is actually there, uh, you know, and some, you know, more conspiracy uh, minded people would say that this is the intended outcome, you know, and uh, I won't take a position on that. But, you know, either scenarios are pretty dire in terms of how do we get out of this? Because clearly our leaders, either they have no idea how to get out of the situation <clears throat> or they or they don't want to get out of it. Because at the end of the day, you know, uh, we're not all in this together. As in a financial crisis, as during a COVID crisis, uh, uh, a lot of people are suffering and will be suffering, but a select group of people are not suffering at all, are in fact making a killing, uh, for example, throughout this energy crisis. So the question is, you know, who uh, do our leaders respond to, the people or um, the big corporations that have put them there? Um, uh, and who are reaping huge profits from the current crisis. So when we talk of crisis or crises, I think it's always important to keep in mind that, you know, it's it's never a crisis for everyone. So who are the people benefiting then? I mean, you, you're casting this, which is it's quite a claim that actually all of these difficult things happening are not affecting us all. In some way, part of society is benefiting from it. And there's the insinuation they might even be furthering it deliberately who are these people? Who, who's benefiting from all of these bad things? Well, I mean, uh, it's, um, it's, it's the usual suspects. I mean, if we look at, uh, you know, uh, if we take COVID, we know that uh, the, uh, the lockdowns, the COVID measures, uh, they, they, they caused immense harm to, uh, to most citizens. They caused immense harm to small and medium businesses, but they, 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 they allowed uh, big tech, um, big pharma companies to reap in billions, uh, tens of billions in profits and to acquire, you know, e you know even more power than they um, than they already had. So clearly, you know, throughout that crisis, we had losers and winners. Uh, if we look at the current crisis, uh, it's, it's exactly the same. Uh, in this case, we're not talking about big tech and we're not talking about big pharma. We're talking about big oil, big energy, big gas. Uh, we, you know, for all this talk of the energy uh, uh, price increases, I think there's you know little understanding of exactly what is the root cause of these energy uh, price increases. I mean, I, I would assume that most people think that maybe uh, Putin is now uh, uh, is now um, has now raised prices by five, six, seven times, and that's why we're paying uh, so much more. But that's in fact not the case. Um, if we look at the uh, the uh, the price of imported uh, gas so that's the, that's the actual price of gas what big energy companies are paying for gas it it has it's hardly risen at all over the past uh, year and it's doubled over the past uh, you know uh, year and a few months um, so you know supply and demand does play a role there we know that you know uh, the Russian supply has decreased a bit but that accounts for a very small uh, percentage of the price increase uh, so we have this small increase in a, a small increase in the price of gas so what the big energy companies are paying for the gas and then we have 
the, the virtual price of gas, the, the, you know, the price that's traded on financial markets, and, it, and, and which is what the wholesale price, uh, because of the weird structures that we self-imposed upon ourselves, are based on, that have increased 1,000%, um, more or less, over the past year. So that's what accounts for the overwhelming majority of the price increase. It's, it's financial speculation. And that explains why the big energy companies are reaping in record profits. If energy companies were paying the gas more and, and then just passing on the increased price to uh, households and businesses, they wouldn't be making these huge profits. You know, I mean, they'd be... Uh, it's be to do with, big... you're talking about futures and yeah. the, the kind of future price, because you, you see these charts of what, what is, you can buy oil or gas, as it were, a year from now. And so a lot of those very, very large increases are what people think is going to happen. Right, so it, it, in a sense, in a sense, it's a model. It's a it's a forecast. It's a panic, or it's a it's maybe justified, but it's a it's a forecast. Yes, it's but it's not just a forecast because we've uh, in the European Union, for example, um, the whole the price of wholesale energy is linked to the TTF in Amsterdam. So we have linked the price of wholesale energies to the prices of energy on these virtual markets. So that's part of the whole process of. Uh, you know, free marketization, liberalization will allow markets to fix the price of gas because, you know, markets are more efficient at pricing uh, things and uh, and that will deliver more efficiency and lower prices for, for everyone. And in, in fact, it's the opposite. So the madness of the situation that we've put ourselves in is that we've institutionalized uh, speculation. So wholesale prices are literally like, institutionally tied to these virtual uh, to these virtual markets. That's crazy. So in the European Union, for example, up until uh, uh, a decade ago, more or less, the, the wholesale prices were were based on long term contracts between uh, importers and exporters of gas. And uh, uh, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the gas that's being imported is still based on these long term contracts. You know, and and and. Uh, so and that's why a lot of these companies aren't paying the gas much more than they were paying it, for example, a year ago. Um, so actually, what we're what what we're going through is uh, so what we're suffering uh, the the consequences of really the kind of crazy hyper neoliberal model that we've adopted in the West. So it's this hyper financialized um, model, hyper marketized model, where essentially we've allowed um, financial markets, speculative markets to decide the price of gas that we end up paying, that we consumers end up paying. That's absolutely mad. Take us from that then to civil disobedience. That's the, that's the question I opened with. I just want to try and get there first. So there's some intrinsic unfairnesses in the system. Uh, some people, as you put it, are benefiting from this crisis. Your suggestion is there will come a point where ordinary people won't put up with it any longer. And certainly some of the movements we've seen here in the UK, there's one called Don't Pay, which has got hundreds of thousands of people to sign a petition saying they will just literally stop paying their energy bills. I don't know how much of that will actually happen, but you think we could get there? Absolutely. I mean, at some point, as I said, uh, you will reach breaking point. I mean, there is a point where, where when... Uh, enough people aren't able to pay their bills and simply aren't able to feed uh, to feed themselves, to feed their families as a result of the increasing cost of living. Uh, I would uh, I would say, but I would also uh, hope that people would um, get very mad and either you know resort to civil disobedience measures such as you know the don't uh, the don't pay campaign, 
um, or actually take to the streets. Um, you know, I mean, I think that would be, uh, I, I would think that would be inevitable uh, in some respect. Um, and I would think it would also be uh, welcome. Um, I think, as I was saying, one of the problems in our societies is the apathy of our societies. I mean, our leaders are able to do what they do because they think they can get away with anything. And so I would say that, um, you know, a bit of civil disobedience, uh, but hey, maybe even a bit more than that. Maybe a bit of uh, unrest in the streets, maybe a bit of rioting uh, would, uh, wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. I mean, we tend I mean, to. I think I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to stop short of calling for mm. rioting, Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, but I hear what you're saying. You're, you you want to see more action. You want to see the the what you perceive as these injustices turn to some kind of movement that will hold the powerful to account. What are you going to ask them to do, though? I mean, this kind of this is often the question with these movements, isn't it? Even as look far back as the. Um, you know, turn of the last millennium kind of era, there's been these big global movements and then you ask people what they actually want to happen and then we're on weaker territory. What would you want governments to do? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot governments could do. I think uh, uh, one of the reasons why people tend to be uh, apathetic is because they've internalized the idea that there's really no alternative. There's not much we can do, for example, about higher prices. Oh, yeah, you, know, you got the war in, in Ukraine, and of course prices are going up. Uh, yeah, it's you know it's that it's that uh, it's the bastard of Putin that's um, uh, shutting off the supply or raising the prices. And what are you going to do about that? Uh, as I mentioned, that's uh, that's not the case at all. There's uh, really, uh, I mean, governments could bring prices down tomorrow. All they would have to do, for example, is. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, first of all, let me look at the solutions that governments are proposing that, for example, the UK government is proposing at the moment. So, uh, OK, so they're saying uh, wholesale prices X, you know, it's gone up five, six, seven times. That's what the energy companies are charging the utility companies. Uh, we can't allow the utility companies to charge those prices to citizens. And so what we'll do is that we'll find, you know, we'll, we'll cap the price a bit lower than that. And we'll uh, cover the difference between the actual wholesale price and the um, and, and the price cap uh, to help the utility companies, because otherwise they would go bankrupt because we can't allow them to, you know, pass on the entire price increase to uh, citizens. And of course, in some respect, that's that's good in the sense that citizens will be paying a bit less than that, than they would actually end up you know, paying uh, if the government didn't intervene. But what you're doing is you're actually uh, you're subsidizing the big energy companies. So you're say you're bailing out the utility companies um, and you're essentially subsidizing the big energy companies. So through your price structure, uh, you're saying I'm allowing the energy companies to, you know, uh, price the energy 10 uh, and um, and then, you know, if utility companies can't afford to buy the energy for that price, I will cover up the difference. I mean, this is literally socialism for corporations. So uh, there's really no other way to put it. I mean, this is a massive scam. Uh, what governments could and should do in the immediate um, uh, future is go to uh, these big energy companies and ask them, how much are you paying the gas? No, show me the, show me the numbers. I want to see how much you're paying the gas. Interestingly, that's a state, you know, that's a, that's a company secret in a lot of uh, in a lot of uh, cases. We have some organizations in Italy that have tried to figure out how much any. So that's a part state owned, a part state owned energy company, um, which has increased prices by you know almost tenfold, and and including uh, uh, um, 
uh, and the energy minister has actually tried to figure out how much is any paying the gas. Simple question. How much are you paying the gas from Russia? Uh, we don't know uh, because they won't open up their, 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 um, their books. So, uh, so that's the first, but that's, that's, of course, the government just accepting no for an answer. Uh, we're forgetting how powerful govern governments potentially are. So they could go to energy companies tomorrow and say, okay, if that's what you're paying, we're going to buy it for the same price. You're not even going to make a profit on that because you've been making huge profits just over the past year, you know. So uh, if, if, if I feel kind, I'll leave those profits to you, but you're not going to make more profits for the next year. Just, just give us the energy for the price you're paying it. That's something that potentially governments could do. For, I mean, these energy prices are set by governments, by authorities. We tend to forget that. In the European Union, I mean, that it's, these prices are basically set by the European Commission. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, they are linked to these virtual trading uh, markets. Um, so first of all, do away, stop tying the price of gas to these speculative financial activities, go to the energy companies and be and just tell them, we are gonna pay the gas, whatever you're paying for it. Uh, and you're not even gonna make a profit um, because you made quite enough money in the past year. Uh, and of course, the next obvious step would be to uh, ask, ask ourselves, um, does it make sense to keep to keep bailing out at a huge public cost, these utility companies, which are essentially bankrupt, which can't be on the market without continuous state support. So we've privatized these companies, thinking that that would bring efficiency and lower public costs. And now we find ourselves having to essentially, uh, uh, you know, extend continuous lifelines to these companies. Uh, what's the point of keeping them private? Uh, start by nationalizing the utility companies, the uh, the energy providers, and then I would be, and, and and the second step would be, in my opinion, to nationalize the big, uh, the big oil companies too, the big uh, energy companies. I can I, I can see no rationale, uh, especially in the current context, for leaving what you know, for leaving what is, uh, you know, the lifeblood of our economies, energy, in the hands of for-profit mega corporations that don't have the public interest um at uh, at heart and look of course they don't have the workers interests at, at heart but they don't have the national interest of countries at heart i would say you know this is why uh, i think this is something that should cut through the left right divide i mean we've reached a point where this is not about you know uh, left or right it's not about uh, it, it's not just a problem affecting ordinary citizens affecting uh workers or low income people i mean this is affecting you know the entire uh, the entire the entire economy, the entire Western um, economic system. So I would say it's a nationalizing these companies has become a question of national security. So you know the demands are pretty simple in my opinion. Of course, people first have to be helped understanding what the problem is. And of course, you know our mainstream media doesn't help in this regard. It keeps muddling the waters. People don't understand what the root cause. Uh, the root causes of this of this poly crisis uh, are, are, and I would say, you know, it boils down to the kind of uh, uh, you know market-based neoliberal uh, model that we have adopted in the past few decades. So my guess here, I can't speak for the viewers, but my guess is that most people would agree with a big part of your analysis of the problems, uh, and that there's been a whole lot of incompetence that have led us to this kind of moment, and something big needs to happen. Where you start losing people will be in the prescribed solution because more state involvement in things like energy companies 
nationalize, going around nationalizing everything may sound like an easy fix, but a lot of people are actually very anxious about countries owning more and more of the things that control their lives. There's a lot of people anxious about national digital currencies where they can turn on and off your paycheck and decide how you spend it. The idea that your government might also own your gas company and turn you on and off depending on whether you've been you know, behaving well will probably freak a lot of people out. So are you sure that's the direction? I, I totally understand why people would think that, um, especially coming from the disastrous management of COVID. A lot of people have started to see the state uh, as the number one enemy. That's that's completely understandable. Uh, as you know, <laughs> I have criticized COVID policies uh, in, in very strong terms. Um, so so the question is not defending what the government has done, has done throughout uh, COVID or before or, or what it's doing now. Um, I would I would say the issue boils down to uh, at the moment the state seems to be bent on uh, controlling citizens, controlling people, and um, giving capital, especially big capital, free reign. So this I would say is more or less the direction we're heading in. This would be my kind of uh, description of neoliberalism. So it's a so it's not a small state uh, model. That's that's based on you know uh, really fallacious views of what neoliberalism uh, is all about. It's not about small state and you know uh, free markets. It's about using the state to essentially uh, empower big corporations and let them get away with pretty much everything they 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 want to do. Uh, it's about creating institutional paradigms where big capital can pretty much do whatever it wants with the aid of the state. So, for example, during COVID, we saw the state uh, helping uh, big pharma make billions through its uh, vaccine mandates. So, you know, the state and big capital work hand in hand. Um, but, you know, it's about deregulating big capital while increasing control of citizens, while increasing control of the everyday life of um, ordinary people. So I would say we have to turn that paradigm on its head. So I would say what we need is a system where the state controls, thoroughly controls big capital, keep, puts a rein on big capital, while at the same time increasing the um, the freedom and the autonomy of uh, of people, but of course that also means uh, giving them, uh, putting them in an economic situation where they can pursue uh, their dreams, where they can pursue, where they come, where they can fulfill their dreams. In the current system, uh, you know, when someone can't pay their energy bills, what you know, in what in what sense are they free? They're not free. So they might be free in a purely formal sense. Um, so I would say creating the material conditions uh, for people to be able to fulfill them, themselves <clears throat> is uh, should be the state's mission. And I think, and but the only way to do that is to rein in big capital, because big capital is ultimately what has been uh, basically sucking wealth uh, from workers, from low-income people, from the lowest strata of society up to the uh, highest strata of society. So, Maybe so, crony capitalism is a more useful absolutely. phrase than the neoliberalism absolutely. here. But that sounds what you're talking about. And I think you're right that people on the right and the left uh, would agree that there has been a lot of that recently, kind of states supporting these big international corporations and their kind of technocratic bargain 
by which those things have been taken out of the democratic sphere. Where I would probably push back, though, is the idea that the crises that we're facing at the moment helps those people. Because if you're a technocrat or the CEO of a big corporation, what you really want is the whole machine to be humming along nicely. You don't like ups and downs. You don't like political crises. You don't like people like you going on YouTube channels and talking about the need for civil disobedience. What you want is quiet. That's where profits are most reliably made. So I don't think these people we are talking about, you know, with access to big international capital, are laughing at the moment. I think it's, not, it's quite an unsettling time for them because net, yes, there might be some companies that have made big profits during these turbulent times, but net, it's been negative for um, big corporations. And the current energy crisis throws up the chance of, as, as you say, we probably, even the British Conservatives, you would probably call them a neoliberal party. Um, they're talking about, you know, big sudden uh, taxes on energy companies, windfall taxes, or maybe there'll be price caps, maybe there'll be something else. If you're a CEO, it's not a, it's not a great environment. What do you say to that? Well, I would I would disagree that things have been bad for uh, for big capital. We we witnessed you know an increased concentration of wealth um, at the you know at the higher echelons of the you know of uh, of of the Western pyramid, and that's uh, that's a fact. Again, you know, it's about winners and it's about who is really uh, pulling the strings. You know, I mean, a lot of companies clearly throughout COVID, as I mentioned earlier, and even now will go under, but then. They are, they are not the ones, it's not, you know, this molecular kind of capitalism made of thousands of small and medium enterprises that are actually influencing government. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the largest corporations. What was I reading just now? The, um, so now they're taught, it, it looks like the biggest, um, so the biggest British companies are likely to, uh, uh, British electricity industry may make 170 billion pounds in excess profits. Now, I think that's that's hard to frame as a bad situation for these people. So I think we really have to understand, I think that um, it's these, uh, you know, it's, the, it's these new uh, industrial complexes uh, that are incredibly powerful that do benefit from these crises. They benefited from COVID and now they're, benefited, they're benefiting from the uh, energy crisis. That's kind of the point that I was making in the article. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not about labor versus capital anymore. I would say it's about labor plus small capital plus medium capital versus big capital. So now you have this uh, uh, this extremely concentrated wealth and power that holds huge influence over governments and has and actually does benefit from situations that make, you know, that, that make uh, uh, all the rest of us worse overall. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, so, so, so I would disagree with that. With that, you know, I think we've entered a phase of what you know uh, Naomi Klein would. Call, we have entered for quite some time a phase of what Naomi Klein would call disaster capitalism. You know, or you could call it emergency capitalism or crisis capitalism. I mean, uh, you know, you've seen the reason in terms of almost the post-war settlement. You know, where you know it was it was a system where. Every, you know, you know they, they capital tried to reach a compromise with labor uh, to the extent that you know as long as if everyone's happy, the system's running, we're making profits, and you you got you guys are earning decent wages, everyone's happy, but we're also making a profit. And but that system broke down a long time ago, so that's not the kind of capitalism that we are in today. Uh, I would be very happy. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, as we transition to uh, the kind of socialist paradise that I dream for, I would be more than happy to go back to uh, the kind of post-war settlement. But um, um, I, I don't see it very likely uh, in, in, in the medium short term uh, because I, because this, what you could call this hyper capital has become completely disconnected from the, you know, from the, from the, from the rest of the economic system. And it often actually benefits from situations that from situations that make the rest of the system worse off. That's why I spoke of in the article, the kind of self-cannibalization of Western capital. I mean, we have to wrestle wrestle our societies free from these mega corporations that I really do consider. uh, And of course, that includes huge financial corporations that exert huge influence over the entire uh, economy. Uh, They are, of course, the same, you know, the, the usual suspects that are, again, making huge profits from this energy crisis. It's not just the energy companies, it's the traders, it's the big banks. So it's always, so so these people are are, are benefiting hugely from this situation that risks, you know, literally uh, killing potentially uh, thousands of people this winter. Let's talk about people's reaction a little bit because that's what we started off talking about. And it is very interesting, this idea that people are more acquiescent or more just happy to go along with a system, even though they know that it's not really working for them. Uh, You know, the 70s is an era where we think about there being a lot of protests. The 60s, there were protests of a different kind. There have been less successful protest movements since then. What's your diagnosis of that? Why do you think people have 
sort of zoned out of the idea of insisting on political change? Well, I mean, uh, I think there are there are a number of reasons. I mean, of course, one reason in, is the kind of is the death of the uh, kind of more labor uh, more labor based uh, radical or socialist left. I mean, there's none of that really anymore in uh, in Western societies. And in, in when it comes to kind of the you know the economic paradigm, labor, social democratic, uh, center left parties are almost indistinguishable from. Uh, conservative center-right parties. Uh, so the kind of you know the convergence of the of what of what historically were the two uh, major uh, kind of political uh, families in the in 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 the first uh, half uh, in the second half of the twentieth century. Uh, that's 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 clearly part of the problem. You know, people realize that voting doesn't make that much of a difference uh, anymore. Um, and of course, you know, the, this kind of this process of depoliticization. Uh, also includes, for example, um, you know, shifting uh, power and responsibilities to these kind of supranational institutions, which aren't accountable to people. The European Union uh, clearly played a big role in the European context in this respect, uh, you know, making people feel even further away from where the decisions are actually taken, which is which is true, uh, which is one of the reasons why I supported Brexit. At least it makes politicians, you know. Uh, Potentially more accountable to uh, to citizens, even though that hasn't worked out that well so much for now. But you know, it does create a framework where they are potentially more accountable to citizens. Um, and then you you have wider kind of anthropological changes. You know, the increased uh, digitalization, I, I think, of life also has to do with that. It's really a myriad of factors. I think a lot of people would agree with some of those factors, but don't they add up to this rather sleepy population? I think both you and I were surprised during COVID how much people were prepared to take. And I guess I began to think that there was something quite attractive to a lot of people about a slightly sleepier way of life. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have put up with it. And it, you, you're getting quite deep and quite sort of existential philosophical here, but it's less energetic. It's less hard work. It's less scary if you have less choice. Um, and if you live in a world where... The, the parameters are sort of set for you by powers that you can't even see and have no power to change. All you can do is kind of go about your day in a smaller, more constrained kind of way. And one, I wonder whether there is something kind of weirdly soporific about that, something that people almost find hard to want to shrug off because it's just too much effort. Do you, do you see where I'm getting at? Obviously. I mean, I think a lot of people will relate to what you're uh, to what you're saying, uh, you know, that's the result of everything I mentioned and probably, you know, a host of other things that we don't have time to uh, to get in. That is definitely where we're at. You know, I mean, Western, you know, Western citizens are more apathetic uh, than they've than they've probably ever been throughout, you know, <laughs> throughout um, throughout history. I mean, that's um, that's a fact. Um, but of course, people also need to eat. So I think the question is, you know, what's kept the system going has been the ability, despite worsening living conditions, despite everything, you know, uh, we're still going to, you know, chances are, you know, masses of people aren't going to go hungry. People are still going to be able to uh, heat and light their homes and you're still going to be able to buy cheap shit from China, even though you're, you're earning a pittance. That's kind of been the neoliberal compromise, you know, we'll give you the kind of bare minimum to survive, 
while we keep amassing, you know, uh, unconscionable riches uh, on your back. Which is why potentially this winter or potentially in the next year, you know, to just today we're reading about small businesses that are going to fold because of energy prices. Venues, places like pubs in the UK, they've already had a terrible time of it because of the COVID policies, you know, now face a whole new challenge, which is, is keeping open during this period. Maybe that changes it. Is that what you're saying? That maybe the sort of sleepiness that we have become used to observing might just end and, and people might just say enough is enough as the movement goes? Uh, well, I think that's a very real possibility. And uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, I mean, OK, we're not going to go as far as to argue for riots, you know, but I would say that would also be uh, the sign that of, of a, you know, that of a healthy society. I mean, they're kind of an instinctual even, uh, uh, you know, a very instinctive reaction to uh, a perceived injustice. Um, I say it's a sign of a healthy uh, society. So I would say that in the face of that, um, I, would, I would think it would be perfectly natural for people to react. As I said, you know, much of the uh, acquiescence, acquiescence has been based on the ability to provide basic material, um, you know, uh, conditions for people. If the system isn't able to provide that anymore, then I think the whole, you know, the, the house of cars does count, come crashing down. Um, and of course, one way to taper over it once again would be to, um, you know, just um, give a lot, you know, give money to people. That's one possible uh, solution. That's that's uh, kind of how they model through uh, COVID. Keeps people quiet in a, in a way, handing out, well, in the UK, it was something in the region of 250 billion pounds, the COVID policies cost. Handing out that or redistributing that through borrowing, ultimately, was, was how people were kept quiet. But that doesn't seem to be a great long-term solution to this. Absolutely. So... So if it's not, so if the system doesn't break down, honestly, I mean, if it doesn't break down this winter, that you're, you're just uh, uh, chucking the ball down, chucking the can down the road, in my opinion, um, because we're realizing more and more that uh, Western power has been based on finance. You know, I mean, I won't get going go into the details, but you know, I would disagree with the term borrowing. The, the UK government just created that money out of thin air. It borrowed it from itself. It borrowed it from, this, from the Bank of England, which is part of the state. So, you know, uh, so there are no financial constraints in the short term. You know, I mean, especially big, powerful, advanced countries can create a lot of money without, you know, uh, without, you know, <clears throat> Uh, two serious consequences in the short term, especially not inflation. And, you know, the inflation we're witnessing now doesn't have to do with that. Um, but what it, I think we're increasingly understanding that uh, actual real resources, real stuff is actually more important than ones and zeros on a computer, which is what financial power is made of. Ultimately, you know, it's just it's basically electronic money. Uh, and we've been we based our power on electronic money for so long. And of course, that has been bolstered by the United States and the power of the dollar. But that system is coming down. And we're realizing that so much of the stuff we actually need to live comes from abroad. <laughs> you know, we have to actually buy it uh, with these ones and zeros, but which are literally ones and zeros. And, you know, and, and I think when, when things turn sour, uh, the country that has you know, the, 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 the raw materials, even if it might have a much smaller GDP 
actually ends up being in a much better position than a country that doesn't have the essential raw materials, but has lots of ones and zeros on a, on a computer. So for you, this moment is tied up with a kind of deglobalization initiative then. You, 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 want, you want to see countries, individual nations being more self-sufficient, producing their own energy, producing their own food, producing their own goods more. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that would be uh, good for the environment since, since, you know, everyone's talking about uh, going green. That would be, uh, you know, we know how much uh, uh, global trade contributes to um, to um, to pollution and to uh, CO2 emissions, if one is worried about that. Um, but, but I think it would it would also make for greater geopolitical security. I mean, making countries, we thought that making countries, uh, you know, increasingly dependent from each other would promote, uh, you know, uh, security and world peace. And in fact, we're figuring out that that's not exactly how it how it works. It can it can actually promote insecurity. And so I think moving towards greater self-sufficiency would definitely be in the interest of individual countries and uh, world peace in general. Um, and again, you know, that's not an impossible, and that doesn't mean going completely autarkic, but it does mean, as Keynes said, you know, making what you can do at home, you should try and do at home, you know, and especially finance, as Keynes used to stress, should be uh, national. Uh, so that means, of course, returning to assist, you know, again, reining in global capital. Um, but again, if we look at energy, you know, we're talking so much about, you know, the energy crisis, and we do have uh, potentially a solution that can make every country uh, largely self-sufficient, and that, of course, is nuclear, uh, nuclear energy. Let me take us back. Thomas, sorry to interrupt there, but let, let me take us back to this idea of, of civil disobedience, because in a sense, that's what might trigger some kind of reaction or some kind of bigger change. Until people decide they're fed up with it, the current system will basically roll on. What is so interesting is how these movements are tied at the moment to a kind of moral imperative. Uh, and that really helps get people on board. So for example, you have a country like Germany, you know, the industrial powerhouse of Europe, asking its citizens to consume less energy, dramatically less energy, um, to first of all help the environment, but also help the Ukrainian effort, um, because it's seen as doing their bit to, to, you know, reduce the power of Putin to punish them. So there's this kind of moral pressure that now goes with these things. And so far, it looks like the people of Germany are going along with it. They are, there are efforts to reduce less reduce energy consumption. How do you tackle that? I think the same is happening in the UK and probably in Italy where you are. How can you sort of reframe the debate so you don't feel like if you if you reject this, you're actually on the side of the baddies? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I would say in very general terms, the way you reframe it is that that's just justifying um, class war, and that's what Rooney elites always do. So after the financial crisis, it was our moral imperative to cut back on uh, welfare expenditure, on social services, on hospital spending, for the greater good because there is no more money, which was, of course, uh, bullshit, because we know that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the state was meantime creating uh, hundreds of billions of pounds, dollars, euros, and um, giving it away to banks. Then we saw the same thing happening during COVID, where we were told it was our moral imperative 
to shut ourselves in our homes, to keep our kids away from school, uh, to you know go through these ridiculous rituals uh, in the name of the collective good, which we know was not served by those measures. Again, we know who those measures served, mainly uh, the big pharma and big tech corporations that made a killing uh, thanks to those um, lockdown uh, and associated measures. And now we're told once again that it's our moral imperative to put our lights off and have cold showers and, and so on. Um, that's just um, that's just putting a nice spin on what is class war, on what is making. Well, so what should we do then? Should we t we turn the we turn the showers up? We 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 turn our all the lights on around the house. Um, in, what is that civil disobedience? In in the, th th in the short term, that makes no difference whatsoever. I mean, that's not. That's not going to make any, you know, uh, any impact overall, um, you know, on the on, on the prices or on the. Uh, I mean. So what should we do, Thomas? We're, is, let's let's just let's, is, let's give you let's give you the pulpit here. What should we do? What what does what is the Thomas Fatsy recommendation to people who are frustrated with the system? They're not probably gonna support some kind of revolution, but they want to make their voices heard. What do you recommend? Well, first of all, I would say what 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 is needed is collective action. Again, this is this kind of neoliberal approach, you know, where it's all about the individual. So it's all about you know, turn your you know, if you turn the lights off a bit, you know, you're saving the world. That's that's bullshit. That's not going to help anything. It's not going to help the Ukrainians. It's not going to help the Russian citizens that you know uh, might want to get rid of Putin. And it definitely doesn't help the poorest and most disadvantaged people in uh, here in Europe or in the West more in general. What is needed is not these individualized solutions, it's collective action. And as you said, uh, that means, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, turning up the heat uh, on our leaders. And that could be through, for example, civil disobedience measures as, uh, you know, um, not paying the bills. Uh, more traditionally, it might mean taking to the streets, uh, picketing, protesting. But I mean, at some point, it's understanding that uh, until we make our voices heard, as you mentioned, uh, things are not likely to change. And that's because that's also part of the problem we're living in terms of uh, Western um, Western political elites. Uh, you know, you, you censored me when I was uh, starting to advocate rioting earlier, but um I think what I was trying to get to is that uh, there's something, I mean, uh, even those in power, I mean, there has to be some feedback between, you know, the, the, you know, the lower uh, rungs of society and the higher rungs of society and the political system. There has to be some feedback. If that feedback breaks down, then you don't live in a democratic system anymore, regardless of whether you can vote every X years. Uh, so, you know, getting some of that feedback back into the system, which does also mean taking angrily to the streets. If you think, uh, uh, you know, if you're pissed off about not being able to uh, to heat your home uh, or to feed your family. And honestly, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I spoke to my mother earlier. She's She lives in Norwich. She's 70. And she was seriously concerned about whether she's going to be able to uh, afford heating this winter or if she's going to just going to have she's going to have to lie in bed under her covers for the entire winter you know uh and that you know that sad that saddens me and it angers me and it saddens and angers me to know that potentially millions of people are having those thoughts at the moment uh and i think it's only fair that those people uh you know 
kind of try to uh, forge and unite and coalesce their energies. And they're angry and, and they're angry because they should be angry. And of course, you know, there's also a lack of people telling uh, citizens that they should be angry. Thomas, do you think it can be done still at the ballot box? I mean, you're talking to us from Italy. We're in the middle of a kind of potential new political era in Italy. If uh, Giorgia Meloni becomes the new prime minister, that's kind of a big deal because she's from a party that was considered fringe uh, extreme until very recently. She's not a big fan of the European Union, although as far as I know, she's not actually planning to take Italy out of it. Are we going to see, do you think, in Italy, an example of how people can actually vote at the ballot box to create change and they don't need to think of new types of revolution? Well, I mean, it, 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 I think Italy is a, is a different case from the UK, as uh, as I've written countless times on, on unheard. You know, I mean, Euro countries are in a very specific situation where, you know, that that basically governments have almost no uh, economic autonomy whatsoever. And so they they lack the, the kind of levers that would that would be needed to solve any of these problems, whether it be nationalizing companies or even just printing money. That's something that Italy can't do. Uh, so when it comes to because Italy, it's uh, in the EU, because it's, it's decided at EU level. Uh, so, it, you know, in a Euro country, especially in a kind of peripheral Euro, uh, Euro country like Italy, uh, voting, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to the major, you know, issues that affect our everyday lives, our major economic and social issues, uh, has become largely um, unconsequential. Uh, so Maloney might you know, be able to intervene in areas such as immigration or more kind of uh, uh cultural uh, uh things but uh, when it comes to actual economic decisions maloney uh has almost no power whatsoever so uh, italy is definitely not a good example to advocate for uh, you know change through the ballot box uh, i would say what we can still consider uh you know a, a a relatively sovereign country definitely a monetarily sovereign country like the uk then you know the situation is different because a government potentially would a different government would have potentially the means to enact a lot of the measures that we spoke about uh, earlier. I mean, it could do it, you know? I mean, it has the fi it has the financial firepower and it has the kind of legal firepower to pretty much do whatever it wants. Um, so, you know, it could bring the, you know, bring the public, bring the energy companies into, under public control. It could, you know, create the money necessary to do that and so on and so forth. So um, uh, potentially, yes. But, uh, you know, the question is that, uh, you know, you have to get that on the back of a... Uh, of a uh, of of uh, you know that I would say that's you know the ballot box should be the 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 kind of uh, endpoint of a wider pro of a longer process you know you get to the ballot point to the to the ballot box you know after you've uh, created a situation in society where enough people want change and then we'll ask for change in the in the in the ballot box if you know if you don't have all that beforehand then you know you just end up uh, choosing you know. <laughs> Um, a different, a different version of, of what of what you had before. So I think it's. So I think the kind of grassroots aspect of it is incredibly important. That's why uh, I would say, you know, in the midst of this situation, there is hope. Uh, in 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 you know, insofar as this situation might kind of be what sparks people to leave the comfort of their homes and uh, you know, um, rediscover the uh, I would say, even the joy. I would say, of collective uh, grassroots political uh, action, because it can be very invigorating to see that, you know, when you when you when you, when 
when you're when you're a sufficient number of people and you're you're sufficient you're sufficiently scary to the people in power, you can actually uh, um, obtain things that you would have thought impossible. Let me ask as a kind of final question whether there is any element of careful what you wish for here because what we've seen during the COVID era is that administrations that consider themselves liberal can be really quite repressive if necessary if they feel like the alternative argument is too existential for them to face and I wonder what would happen in a liberal Western country, if there was a very sincere, very, you know, powerful opposition movement, do you think we might even see repression instead yeah. of, uh, you know, def change? De definitely. Oh, I think in uh, in you know you you're also going to see repression. That's part of every uh, of every movement for change. And and you know you don't have to come up with. Uh, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, ima imagine scenarios. I mean, just look at, for example, how the the, the yellow vest movement in France was repressed by um, by Macron. So we have, you know, we know how these governments react to mass movements. We saw how these governments reacted to the anti-lockdown protests uh, in in a number of countries, very violently, in a very repressive manner. So, uh, so you know, yes. the, the Canadian truckers' bank or, accounts no, were frozen. That's even more dystopian what they did in that case. So of course we are uh, going to witness repression, uh, but you know we are in the middle. Uh, you know we, uh, but, but you know, this is part of finding. I think a new. Um, we really need to find a new uh, a, a new consensus. Uh, you know, I mean the West, the West really needs to reinvent itself, and it, it's not going to reinvent itself without you know some degree. Of uh, of turbulence, I think that's part of what you know. It's like it's 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 uh, it's growing pains. You know, I mean, uh, it's 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 part of it's part of growing up. And I think Western societies do need to uh, grow up. They need to evolve into something different from what they've become, and that will involve a period of uh, of, of turbulence. That's uh, that's for sure. There's going to be there's going to be repression. There's also going to be you know victories on on both sides. You know, I mean, it's uh what where I think. We might be witnessing the beginning of this process of uh, of of change, uh, which is going to be long and difficult and hard. But um, you know, I would say uh, the alternative is almost uh, uh, is is worse. I would say by almost any uh, any definition, because you're simply postponing all of these problems uh, just just further down further down the road. So I think you know we have to. Uh, we have to be ready for for you know for, for the change that's coming, and that's you know it's uh, it's it's scary, but it can also be, um, um, I would say, exciting. Absolutely. Thomas Fatsy, thank you. With those rousing and somewhat unsettling words, we are going to have to call it a day. But thank you for your thoughts today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, there you have it. That was Thomas Fatsy, unheard columnist, filmmaker, activist making the case for some kind of collective action, non-compliance, civil disobedience, to make the point to whoever is listening that the system we are governed in is no longer working. My guess is that some people will be inspired, others may be kind of terrified and wary of civil unrest of any kind. We will see how bad it gets this winter and which of these groups wins out. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.